Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yo, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Neighborhood Podcast. My name is Kevin Valentin. And I'm Kyle Dabber. I'm the co-host alongside with Kevin. Kevin, what's good, man? What's good, man? Been a long fucking Thursday. That's what I'm telling you. Can't wait to be Friday. But today we got a little bit of chatter to get into. With the NBA season pretty much coming to a halt for the All-Star weekend break up this upcoming weekend, um, Kyle and I just kind of wanted to give like a a mid-season report card, kind of sort of, you know, how certain teams are going, uh, some halfway through the season MVP odds. Uh, halfway through the season, what we think our comeback player of the year would be if we were to end today, defensive player of the year, so on and so forth. Uh, we're also going to talk about the, you know, the NBA standings and, you know, what teams are really surprised us. Like we did a couple of weeks ago, but obviously now we're a lot further in, uh, possibly even get into the coach of the year. And then we have a little bit of, as per usual, uh, some NFL chatter, some rumors that have been circulating over the last couple of days. Uh, obviously with the NFL kind of being at a complete halt right now, any news is good news especially in this industry. So, I mean, um, Kyle, let's start with you, man. We got some MVP odds favorites over here. I have, uh, I believe I have the sportsbettingdime.com MVP odds. And in particular order from fifth to first, I have Steph Curry. I have Luka Doncic. I have Nikola Jokic, Jokic. I have Joel Embiid. And oddly enough, they have LeBron James winning this year's MVP if it were to end right now. So your thoughts? I mean, I don't think LeBron is really in the MVP contention right now, simply because ever since 80's been out with that Achilles slash calf injury that he's been recovering from for the last couple of weeks, the Lakers haven't been playing really that well. They've lost probably the last five out of their last six games. And if LeBron really wanted to insert himself into the top of the MVP discussion at this point, it would be a lot more different had they won probably four or five out of their last six games instead of losing those games. And just the way that I see it currently, I just don't think LeBron's really done enough to put himself at the top of the MVP race. But as it stands right now, my current MVP up to up to this midpoint in the season is Joel Embiid. Joel Embiid has been absolutely dominant this year so just to kind of look at his stats just from this year alone he's averaging over 30 points a game he's shooting over 52 percent from the field over 41 percent behind the three-point line which is just absolutely ridiculous that a seven foot one big man is averaging over 40 percent behind the three-point line this year and then to go on top of that he has over 11 and a half rebounds per game and he's also averaging almost one and a half blocks per game He's been absolutely sensational, just like I mentioned. And he's been a huge factor to why the 76ers are the number one team in the Eastern Conference right now. I think with him and then also with the addition of Doc Rivers coaching the 76ers this year, you have seen huge progression steps from Joel Embiid and the entire team as well, but specifically Joel Embiid. Because I think you and I both have thought that Joel Embiid can be this type of player now that he has 
the right coach around him to coach him up properly. He is now playing at a superstar level. There are no more concerns about whether his cardio is an issue or his just his overall endurance is an issue anymore. He seems to be in great shape right now. And he's playing his ass off right now. So you got to give him a lot of respect for the numbers that he's putting up and it's showing on the win and loss column as well. Absolutely. I mean, Joel Embiid has been pretty much playing up to par. This is kind of like we talked about. He's playing finally at a level that we all wanted him to coming out of Kansas. We do know that the injuries early on in his career, the minutes, the health, pretty much everything that you said was uh, in question, kind of having everybody like, will he ever reach his full potential? And also reiterating what it is you just said, when you have a coach like Doc Rivers that knows how to manage a superstar with an ego, that knows how to manage a superstar that, quite frankly, is the entire team. Not that Philly can't win without Joel, but they would obviously diminish their chances of bringing any type of relevance to the city without him. So, I mean, when you have someone like Doc Rivers, who's coached the likes of Tracy McGrady in Orlando, Chris Paul, DeAndre Jordan, Blake Griffin, all of them in L.A., you had the, 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 the original big three and Kevin Garnett, Ray Allen, and Paul Pierce, and all of those teams succeeded, obviously only one of them winning a championship in Boston in 2007-2008, but he knows how to manage a player that has a little bit of an attitude, a little bit of a chip on their shoulder. And we all know Joel Embiid has been very vocal over the last couple of years and very, you know, expressive of how he feels that the league needs to be or how talented he believes that he truly is. So when you combine an experienced veteran head coach like Doc Rivers, the playing style and capabilities of Joel Embiid and surrounding them with a good team with the likes of Tobias Harris, uh, Seth Curry, and so on and so forth. Obviously, you know, Ben Simmons, of course, uh, despite Ben's inability to shoot, uh, you really have a great, great team. And that's why they're heading up the top of the Eastern Conference. And it's no surprise, but the numbers that Joel's putting up this season, he's having a very Hakeem Halajawan slash, you know, Wilt Chamberlain almost year. Obviously, he's not scoring 100 points. He's not averaging like 38 and 15 but I mean he's putting up numbers that we haven't seen from a big man in quite some time in terms of consistency this year and the the numbers behind the arc the percentages are out of this world so it it only just continues to support his campaign for MVP so do you have him as your favorite for MVP right now or do you have somebody else personally I have Joel Embiid but it's not as big of a margin as a lot of people have. And I know that you're going to agree with me. My number two, this man, Nikola Jokic, is hooping out of his damn European Slovenian mind. Wherever he's from, Yugoslavia, hold on, before I go and misquote, he is from, is it Ukraine? Why can't, doesn't it tell me where he's from? Shit. It should. He, he, he from Europe, right? So he... I don't know why I don't say America or none of that, but <laughs> we, we all know he's not from here. So we got Nikola Jokic out here averaging 27, 11, and 8.6 rebound, 8.6 assists a game, shooting just under 57% from the field at 56.9. He's shooting 41.7% from the three-point line, and he's shooting 88.5% from the free throw line. Like – crazy again another another seven footer but my thing with Jokic is he also knows how to distribute the basketball Jokic is probably the best passing big I have ever seen in my life because Mm -hmm. we grew up in an era where the the back to the basket center 
was obviously coming to an end with the stretch four and, you know, most recently within the last half decade or so uh, playing small ball, having a center that can shoot. But, you know, obviously in our era, the big man was always the guy down low. We grew up in an era where Shaq was dominant. We grew up in an era where Yao Ming was, was a presence in the post, but you have seven footers coming from overseas or being trained out of high school. You got to be able to shoot the basketball. And similar to Joel Embiid, this guy's averaging 41% from the three-point line. And I mean, like, he's doing it on every aspect of the manner that needs to be done from the center position. But he can bring the ball up. Like, what seven-footer brings the ball up and knows how to make moves and run the offense? Like, I've never seen it before. And I think if Denver finds a way to surge up from the seventh seed, you know, find a way to get their chemistry going, some injuries have been plaguing them for a little bit. If, if Jokic can kind of bring those numbers up a little bit around the 30 mark per game, and if he can get around 9.4, almost averaging a triple-double as a seven-footer, I think that he takes it from Joel because he's doing more than just scoring. He's doing everything. I think, like you mentioned, I think the only thing that's really holding him back, probably from the top spot in the MVP race at this point, is the fact that Denver is – did you say that they're the, the fifth the best seventh. team? Oh, they're the seventh? The, yeah. Yeah, okay. So they, they, they've got some work to do. I Look, it's the Denver Nuggets. The Denver Nuggets are a very talented team, obviously with Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic leading the way. And I could realistically see that they could probably crack the top five in the Western Conference this year. But the main thing is they have to be healthy because I know what they can do in the playoffs. Last year proved that they are really capable of making a deep playoff run against some really competent teams in the Western Conference and even pushed the Lakers to a tough it was a tough five-game series against the Lakers last year. The Lakers had to earn all of those wins in the Western Conference Finals. And in large part, it was because of Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray playing just out of their minds. Yeah. Um, just to quote myself, or you know, correct my quote, he's from Serbia. My apologies deeply. I didn't mean to sound ignorant or, or like every European is the same. I, for whatever reason, I didn't realize the bio button was right underneath where I was looking. I just didn't see it. Um but to, to kind of backtrack, to kind of go back into the MVP conversation, to go into another player, um, he's on my team. Obviously, I'm going to know a lot about him. Luka Doncic is obviously playing out of his mind, improving on a lot of statistical categories from his short career as it is. He's averaging a career-high 28.6 points per game. He's averaging around the same you know career averages in rebounds. He's averaging 8.4. He's averaging nine assists this season, 47.8% from the field. He has increased his three-point percentage from earlier this season. I believe he was shooting 9% from the three-point line. He's picked it all the way up to 35.7. And he's nine? also wait, wait, wait. Shut, It was nine. 9%? Yeah, that was bad. Like, legit. Like, I'm not playing. Like, they said it during a game I was watching, and he was like, yeah, yeah it was bad. Oh, my God. But he's picked it up. I mean, a, a, a significant amount of shit. And, you know, he's, he's hitting a lot more free throws. He's averaging 75% from a free throw line. And, you know, Dallas is on a very good pace right now. Dallas is 8-2 and two in their last 10 on a three-game winning streak. We are 18-16 and 16 at the eighth seed in the West. Obviously, two, three weeks ago, me and you were talking about Dallas being on the hot seat. And if they don't turn it around, it might be, you know, it might be limiting minutes for Kristaps. It might be limiting minutes for Luka. It might Luka playing out for an MVP without him being in the playoff run. I don't know if that would have even been possible. But because of the experience in Rick Carlisle and the team finally getting healthy. I think that my team has finally found a way to turn it around. And it is all solely because of Luca averaging over 30 points per game in February. So, I mean, 
yeah. you know, we, we, we live and die by Luca. Obviously we, we, we didn't play without him last night due to some, I think some, some back tightness or something like that, but we ended up squeaking out that win against OKC um, thanks to Kristaps and Timmy. But I think Luka Doncic is very well deserving of being in this MVP conversation because without him, there is no turnaround. And without Luka, there is no Dallas. Well, they got off that. They got off to that horrendous start at the beginning of the season where they were, I mean, at the bottom of the Western conference, they were one of the worst teams in the Western conference to start out the year. However, they have been able to write the ship. You got to remember this team was dealing with a lot of COVID issues specifically, probably about, I want to say like a month into the season where a large portion of the team was on the bench because they couldn't go out and play because of COVID. Obviously now they have a full roster that they can actually field on the, on the court and they have really turned it around. Like you said, they've won eight out of their last 10 games. And I fully expect that this team is going to be a hot team coming into the playoffs this year because they know how bad of a start they got off to. And obviously right now they're trying to play catch up and they're doing a pretty good job of it. I just going into the second half of the season, I want to see if Luca can maybe even go another level higher than what he's been currently at right now. I mean, he's averaging 30 points in the month of February. So I mean, it's, it's pretty be, hard to go higher than it's, that. It's, it's, it's going to be tough to top that, but he said, he said it a couple of weeks ago that he was not playing up to the standard that he thought he could play. And he has fully shown the world that at 22 years old, what's crazy. He's only 22 years old. That this kid, that this kid, could be one of the greatest basketball players in our generation. He's been playing up to that level. And he does remind me a lot of Larry Bird in that sense. His playing style does kind of give me that vibe of a Larry Bird that back in the day. Patient, slow playing. Yeah. 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 So if I, I think could shoot like him, it'd be a lot better, but I'll take what I can get. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, going from 9% from the three point line up to what, what, what's it now? What's his average? 35.7, bro. A, he's a, almost at 36. That's huge. He's got a, he could get that up to 40. He could probably get that up to 40. I think so. I mean, with the volume of threes that he takes a game, I mean, yeah, I would hope so. But, you yeah. know, he's actually taking and making them now. So we'll see what happens. Um, obviously, you got to put LeBron James in the category for MVP at all times. But like you said, I'm not going to go and reiterate that. Uh, you know, with the Lakers' bad play, Lately, and you know, Braun missing his running mate and Anthony Davis, uh, his MVP campaign has taken a little bit of a dive. So, my next player that we're all going to talk about that you know, a fan favorite, uh, a, a very good friend of mine I had on my podcast uh, a couple months back when this all first started. Shout out to, to Mike Casada. Uh, Steph Curry is playing absolutely insane, returning from the broken hand injury that occurred last season. He is averaging 29.7 30. He's averaging five rebounds a game, 6.3 assists, 40, 47% from the field, and 41% from the three-point line, shooting a stellar 93.4% from the free throw line. And he's carrying Golden State pretty much to the only relevance that they're going to have without their superstar in Clay Thompson. I mean, you have no Clay. Kelly Oubre started the season very, 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 very bad. Andrew Wiggins has pretty much been a no-go. And Draymond Green has games where he's absolutely worthless. So, I mean, when you talk about a man showing why he's been the MVP of this league back-to-back years, when you see that he's been a a scoring champ, a three-time NBA champion, it's just you don't question his greatness when he's doing things like this. And I know that early on in the season he was struggling, but are you kidding me? Like, what more do you need? The man is absolutely balling out of his mind. And he averaging, I think he's averaging over 32 points per game in the month of February. It's, 
it's crazy what he's doing without his running mate. And it's just scary to think what this team could be with Clay Thompson next season. Exactly. And I think really the only thing that's holding Golden State back right now is the fact that they just can't play solid defense because you have Steph out here. What did you say he was averaging in the month of February? 32 something. I mean, you can't really play that much better than that. He is going out in the court. I, I mentioned this a, a couple weeks ago when I talked about Draymond and his shenanigans costing the Warriors games. Stephen Curry has to carry Draymond, who is a, basically a 10-year veteran at this point, only averaging like five or six points a game. He's not the defensive presence that he used to be when Golden State went on their title run a couple years ago. Kelly Oubre has been inconsistent at best so far this season. Andrew Wiggins has turned it around. Thank God. Yeah. Cause I mean, he was horrendous at the beginning of the year. And then like you mentioned, Andrew Wiggins, he hasn't really been playing. He's been playing bad basketball. And Steph has to take that all into account to get to this team, to get this team to where it is now. The fact that they're, a playoff team as it stands right now is unbelievable. Well, they're ninth. They're ninth at nineteen and seven. They're, so they're gonna, the only yeah, they're going to go up. They're they're going to go up. I, I could, I kind of, I basically consider them a playoff team. I'd be shocked if they didn't find a way to get at least into the seventh seed or the eighth seed by the end of the year. This team, despite the fact of not having Clay Thompson, they are a playoff team. Are they going to really scare anybody? Probably not. They're probably going to get our first round exit, but it's not. Be, it's not going to be because of Steph. Steph's doing everything that he can. You you better, better, better watch out. Depending on the matchup that they have, they got a rookie down there at the five spot and James Wiseman that's playing pretty damn good. And yeah, they're going to be we first both round. we both know if this man gets hot, we have a problem. He dropped fifty seven. Granted, Dallas's defense is nothing to be proud of, but it's still a professional basketball team. Dropped 57. He had 50 and three quarters. I mean. Are you kidding me? I mean, the Warriors have to go up either against Utah, the Clippers, or the Lakers potentially in the first round of the playoffs. There's no way, unless Steph averages 40 points a game in that series, there's no way that they're getting out of the first round. I'm not saying saying they're not going to be a first round exit, but don't say it like it's going to be a sweep or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, this kid, it'll be a gentleman's kid, sweep. He's in his 30s. It'll be a gentleman's sweep. They'll be in five. Well, hey, I, I, I don't know. I'm just saying, I, I definitely ain't gonna sleep on the baby face assassin. He's not gonna, hey, he know I, how to get it done. Like I said, it's not gonna be because of Steph. Steph's been balling the entire year, and arguably at this point, he is either the, the number one or number two guy at comeback player of the year. And we'll probably get into that a little bit later. It's it's really sad that the, the a lot of fans and a lot of you know people out there were, were kind of shaming him for not producing immediately after being out of basketball for relatively almost an entire season. I don't know anybody that comes into the season and just you know drops buckets immediately after missing so much time. So like people jumped on that wagon pretty quickly to say he was washed. He can't do it without KD. He never gonna get it without Clay, and he's carried them to you know playoff contention at this you know day and age at this moment in a very 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 competitive western conference i think that speaks volume about not only his his play as a player but you know his character as a leader it, it says a lot about steph but um sure. i have one sleeper potential up and coming mvp obviously i i mentioned braun to be in the top five because he's lebron that's it but 
We got to talk about James Harden in Brooklyn, man. I, I know Kendrick Perkins, of all people, is saying that James Harden is the MVP of this league because of what he's been able to do with Brooklyn. With at, at a lot of times, both superstars being out, there were times where Kyrie didn't play and there were times where KD has not been able to uh, be available because of injury or because of COVID or because of rest. You know, uh, James Harden is already second all time in Brooklyn's franchise leading in triple doubles. I think he has five. And I know that's not a lot, but I mean, to average over, he leads the NBA in assists right now with over 11. He's averaging just shy under 26 a game. And he's averaging what? Almost eight rebounds. He's averaging 7.8, shooting 40% from the three-point line, 48% from the field, and 85% from the from free throw. I, all I'm okay. saying is that the, the, the man is doing everything he needs to do in order to stay to keep this team at the two, if not try to excel past, you know, Philly. But if his running mates aren't consistent, you know, one out, the other out, both out, like James is carrying this team. I don't want to say of scrubs, but I mean, relatively speaking, outside of DeAndre Jordan, there isn't really a lot of firepower on this team that isn't Joe Harris as well. Yeah, I mean, the only deterrent for him getting the MVP at this point is the fact that he has KD and Kyrie on the roster. I Listen, statistically speaking, he's balling out, and that's with the fact that he's probably still 10 pounds overweight. He's been balling out ever since he's he got traded from Houston. But I just think at this point, even if he's putting up those numbers, the fact that I, I do really kind of think this has kind of like guilt by association attached to it. It's just, I don't know if they're going to get, give the MVP to somebody where you have Kyrie and James and not James Harden, and Kevin Durant on the same team. Unless uh, James Harden would have to average like 34, 35 points a game for him to really kind of stand out from the pack. I mean, I don't know his numbers that he's had since he's been on Brooklyn. Mind you, those are numbers that he's also had while he was in Houston. Mm-hmm. So that could play a portion of it. But I'm just saying, you know, I know that he has been like literally like a couple points or not a couple points, a couple rebounds or an assist or two away from a triple-double almost every night the last month or so. So, I mean, I would say in the month of February, or at least since he's been to Brooklyn, he's like a couple points shy or a couple statistics shy of a triple-double nightly, and that's pretty scary. I mean, look, I I criticized him for all the shenanigans he had when he was leaving Houston. I mean, look, he was – he could have gone about that situation a lot better when he left Houston. It was a disaster, but he's been able to kind of rectify this season for his own image by what he's been doing on the court with Brooklyn this year. And he's been sensational this year. I mean, I got, I got some for you. So what he put Houston through all season, right. And all off season. Yeah. Tell me how Houston's still going to retire his jersey. I've are you are you are you absolutely insane if that doesn't if that doesn't show weakness i retire it 10 years from now when he's done washed but already dude you're retiring an active player's number while he literally just beat your ass on tv the other night like are you bro are you kidding me are you bro the rockets organization as a whole man like john wall need to get up out of there because that organization's crazy they didn't even do that with kobe they didn't retire his number until Later, I mean, like, crazy. You're gonna do that with crazy, James Harden bro. as an active player? Like, no, bro. Come, I get it, man. He carried your team to, to the Western Conference Finals and the playoffs and this and that and won an MVP and blah blah blah. Congratulations! That doesn't automatically make you a player caliber to be hung up in the rafters 
while active at least. Like, he wasn't averaging 40 a game. He didn't lead you to, like, three NBA titles. He didn't lead you to top seed in the Western Conference year after year after year. We're talking a guy that was a top three, top five player in the NBA throughout his tenure in Houston, you know, more recently within the last four to five years, you know, consistently in the playoffs, an MVP caliber player, and and you're going to retire him after what he put you through this past offseason, a rookie head coach, you know, pretty much a brand new team with John Wall, Boogie Cousins, who's not even on this team anymore. But the point of the guy that's supposed to be the guy was being a dick and yeah. you're going to retire is not uh, – I don't know, man, but I'm not, I'm not going, I'm not going to get emotionally invested in this because it's stupid. and doesn't make sense to me. What we need to talk about is this NBA officiating that's been going on the last couple of weeks of the season, because Lord knows, I don't know if they like conveniently, you know, they got together in a meeting and said, yo, we ain't going to tolerate no bullshit no more. Or we're going to be hypersensitive because I'm seeing T's thrown around like L's like you get an L you get an L bro. It's crazy. Everybody getting teed up. And if you even look at a ref, I feel like they're just itching to blow that whistle and hit you with that team. And I smack you with that bullshit. I've seen some of these calls lately. I'm like, bro, are you kidding me? They're grown men. They're allowed to have emotion. I, I don't know. You might have a different opinion. I know we talked about it earlier, but what, what what's your take on this shit? I mean, the Matras Herald technical foul the other day, that was ridiculous. I mean, he got, he made the shot. He said, I mean, I mean, time flies, bro. It's just, the way that I saw that play, I didn't think it was worthy of a technical. He, he, he did kind of yell and won a little bit loud, but to get a technical out of that, I just – I didn't see that, that it was completely what unnecessary. player doesn't scream? That? You know how many times a ref got to hear and yeah, won? Yeah, exactly. Now, with that said, though, that doesn't mean that every one of these technical fouls that that these referees have levied are Not bad. all of them, no. Some so, of them are questionable. So, obviously, there's been a lot of hubbub about Devin Booker and Donovan Mitchell getting ejected from technical fouls that they received during the game. I'll start with Devin Booker first. So everybody was up in arms about Devin Booker getting ejected from the game after he got two bat-to-bat technical fouls. And a lot of people thought that he got ejected because he passed the ball to the ref towards the ground, kind of like, kind of like a hard bounce pass to the ref. And I watched the whole play. I watched, the before the before the foul happened after the after the foul happened and what Devin Booker was saying to the refs before he ended up getting tossed look Devin Booker was ch- was chirping with the refs there's no doubt about it i believe the report that i read said that the first one that he got meaning technical fouls that he got was that he was consistently complaining to the refs so that was the first one the second time, river. everyone does. I, I think it got to the point where it was like, look, dude, you got to stop. And it's like, it got to the point where it's like, hey, bro, you know, you get the tea because of this. And then the second one, this is basically what I heard from the ref's report or the, the ref's account was that Devin Booker got the second technical because of profane language being directed towards an official. So that was the reason for the second foul. Look, you can make a case that it's BS, you got to let it go. And it is what it is. But if you're constantly chip, chirping with the refs, you're going to give yourself, you're going to put yourself in a position to get a technical foul. Look at Draymond Green a couple of weeks ago. Kept chirping with the refs, cost his team a win because of getting technical fouls. So if Devin Booker, was he as vocal as what Draymond Green was a couple of weeks ago against the Hornets? No. 
But at the same time, we don't know what he actually said to the refs. And that's the thing that we have to take into account. Obviously, we can read body language with what Devin Booker was probably inferring to the refs. But we don't know what he was actually saying. So only the refs and him and everybody on both teams know what Devin Booker said. So with Devin Booker, could he have handled it a little bit better? Yeah. Was it worthy of him getting tossed out of the game? Probably not, but he didn't help himself. And Monty Williams, his own coach, didn't necessarily back him up 100%. He's saying, look, we gotta, you got to be better at handling our emotions when things don't necessarily go our way. Now, granted, they ended up winning that game against the Lakers the other night. So in the end, it didn't really matter. But that's going to be something that, look, Monty Williams may have to talk to Devin Booker, especially when it comes to these playoff games that they're going to be playing in a couple months from now. It's like, we can't afford you to get these technical fouls and you be out of the game because we're going to need you down the stretch when it starts really getting important during these playoff games. Now with Donovan Mitchell, Donovan Mitchell pretty much brought that upon himself. He shoots a contested three-point shot, thought he got fouled, doesn't get the call. And then for the next 10 to 15 seconds, he's walking down the court, chirping with the refs. And it got to the point where I believe the 76ers got fouled and everybody's headed to the free throw line. And yet Donovan Mitchell is still chirping. He's still going off. And then he gets tossed. With that one, I don't think Donovan Mitchell helped himself whatsoever. And, and for anybody that was saying this, like, why did Donovan Mitchell get tossed? Look, kind of similar to what I brought up with Devin Booker. You can keep chirping with the refs, but to a certain point, these refs are human too, and they can only take so much. And he got tossed out of the game. And look, at that point in the game, there was about 35 seconds left in the game. Philly was up five, and they were going to the free throw line. I believe Tobias Harris shot two free throws that probably put him up seven. And pretty much the game is out of reach at that point. It's a three-position game with about 35 seconds left. Is it impossible to come back from that? No. Is it unlikely? Yeah. So I don't think Donovan Mitchell helped himself there. And, and look, you have to you have to judge these individual cases on their own merit. First, are there some calls that are absolutely horrendous? Yes. That Montrezl Harrell won the other day uh, yesterday was bad. But these other two with Evan Booker and Donovan Mitchell. I think a lot of people are making these calls worse than they are actually actually are. That's kind of how I see it. But obviously you may have a different opinion than mine. So I definitely want to hear your take on what you think these refs and these calls have been lately. So my thing is with text and, you know, obviously in any sport, there is a situational awareness that athletes need to have. There is times where, you can complain. There are times where you can get upset. You can get riled up. You might even throw in a couple curses here and there. But it's like we're talking late in the game in both situations mm-hmm. in reference to the Donovan Mitchell and Devin Booker situation. The we're Devin talking Booker about – Devin Booker was in the third quarter. Oh, I thought it was in the fourth. That was in the third. So he got ejected early. That was the third. Damn. So, I mean, that kind of changes my point. Nevertheless, situational awareness is – something that athletes need to be obviously cognizant of Um, in reference to Devin, where he was kind of like chirping and doing his thing. And then the whole theory of him, you know, throwing the ball towards the referee and then the profound language. um, You you just can't go doing that. I think the whole profound language is bullshit because you and I both know we've heard LeBron James in multiple occasions 
when mic'd up or with the crowd being out of the stadium in the last couple of years, obviously with COVID last year in Orlando. And this year for the early part of the year, you can really hear what players were saying on the court. Mm-hmm. Um, excuse me. And even when players were mic'd up, actually, you could hear Braun bitching and complaining and cursing. Like, come on, Ernie, what the fuck, man? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. every player says these things. Every player gets caught up in the moment. They're emotional. And similar to what you said, refs have emotions too. They're going to be like, yo, he's been in my ear for two quarters. I've given him even the half to calm down. He's still talking to me. Yeah. He, it, the, t- the tech is almost like a, a, a timeout to stop a run from a team to continue to score. It's, it's, it's to snap a player in reality and it's say, a check. stop. It's yeah, a check. It's, it's, it's a mental check. Yo, cut that shit out or I'm going to yeah. give you another one. So yeah. the Devin Booker one, I really don't think it was grounds for an ejection because obviously all players get agitated and curse. The profound, like, shut up, man. Just it, It's a man's sport. Shut up. Let him complain. Devin doesn't normally do that. That's not, that's out of his character. And uh, on, on, I don't agree with what you said with Draymond. I feel like Draymond has kind of carried this reputation with him throughout his entire career so when Draymond just begins to get uppity I feel like a ref is itching to tee him up because of you let Draymond start going off it's going to turn into an entire game of him bitching and moaning and and, and whining so Mm -hmm. versus like a Devin Booker a Donovan Mitchell it's like a yo these guys never really complain out of pocket or these these, this is way out of their character like what the hell maybe I got the wrong call not that they can change it but it's to show you know, like, yo, like, I think that was bullshit, Johnny. Like, obviously, I don't know the ref's actual names in these cases, but I'm just saying in general. The Donovan Mitchell one, now that you mention it, re-looking at the highlight while you were talking about it, it is definitely more understandable because Donovan literally did not stop talking yeah. for a span of, like, a good couple of minutes. Obviously, timeouts and fouls and, and you know, the shot. He walked down the ref. Yeah. you When you are on a ref's side – and he's telling you, shut up. Like, we're talking, we're, we're at the tail end of a game. We're talking, this ref is probably exhausted from running up and down that damn court and dealing with players' bullshit the yep. entire game. And then you're going to sit here. He already made the call. It's 35 seconds left afterwards. Bro, shut up. It's over already. Like, fucking play the game. I get it. I understand what that ref's coming from. And, like, again, you know, they have emotions. They get annoyed, too. Yep. So, I just, I don't know, man. The Montrez Harrell one was absolutely out of pocket. I thought that was stupid. It was just unnecessary. I don't know what it is. I feel like like a comparison. I know it's not as drastic, but it's like that NFL season where we had replacement refs and there were bad calls all over the place. I'm not even just talking about technicals. I, I don't know if it was last night or the night before Golden State played Portland and Damian Lillard kind of slid under Draymond Green. And it looked like Dame's feet were still kind of sliding underneath him because he got there a little late and mm-hmm. the refs called a charge. And it, you know, when you slowed it down, because obviously, you know, you have a challenge and you have time to, you know, go over these things. Mm-hmm. It really did look like Draymond got there before the slide or it looked like, you know, Dame's Dame was still shifting. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm just I feel like these calls have been bad all season. I feel like there have been a lot of early whistles for nonsense. And I, I just feel like these refs are kind of going through. I don't know if it's an ego check or a power trip, because we all know that free throws like that late in a game or free throws like that in general, we, games can be decided by a point. So, yeah, you know, these things put players yeah. in a, a difficult position to, to kind of play with their full, their, their fullest potential. Because when you got a T you're scared to do anything. You're scared to get hype after a foul. You're scared to, you know, have a good dunk 
or get celebrated or animated when your teammate scores. So that might, you know, that might be the, the diffuser to a team going on a run. I'm, I'm thinking very small and minuscule picture here, but you get a T that changes the aspect of a lot of things for some teams. I, I think you really hit the point home with the whole situational awareness aspect, because a lot of times the way that I've always kind of seen it in basketball is that with technical fouls, I always kind of say that like, the, this is almost like a mental lapse where it's a mental mistake that doesn't necessarily get the criticism like it does in football. Like in the NFL, you get like an an unnecessary roughness penalty or you get like an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty. It has far more drastic implications. 15 yards. It's much more severe in the the NFL. I believe in the NBA, it's not necessarily treated the same way because I think the nuance of it is, is that it can be, it could be rectified if you go on some run, but looking back at it, if you get a technical foul, you could give the other team a lot of momentum and a lot of it could be just from a root, the root cause of getting a technical foul or an ejection. So like when it comes to Devin Booker the other day, look, you're going up against LeBron James and the Lakers. It doesn't help your team. If you constantly keep chirping with the refs and then you get tossed because of it, it does, it's going to hurt your team. Now in that, in that instance, it didn't hurt them to the extent that it could have because the Suns ended up winning that game. But with Donovan Mitchell, look, could they have come back against the 76ers? It was probably going to be a too tall of a task, but you never know. So uh, the one thing that I really think that these players, they kind of forget in the moment is that situational awareness. It's like, look, we're going to need you, especially in these critical moments at the end of the game. And if you're going to just complain about the, the refs, about not making the calls that you want them to make, you're going to put your you're going to put yourself in a position where you could get a technical foul, you get ejected from the game, and not only does it look bad on you, it's going to hurt your team in the process. So, I wish there was a little bit more. I won't say criticism, but it's like I wish there was more. There were more like some more severe consequences for getting those fouls. It's like, hey, dude, it's like you can't be doing that. It's like you're putting a, you put you're putting the team in a hole here, and specifically what, what I mentioned with Draymond a couple of weeks ago somebody's got to get in his ear and say, dude, you got to cut that shit out. Cause at, at some point it's going to be too much. It's going to be too much to handle. I know Draymond's kind of gotten that reputation for being kind of a hothead, especially when he doesn't get calls his way, but it cost them a finals. He did freaking hit LeBron James in the nuts in a pivotal game five ends up getting, he didn't get kicked out of the game in game five. He ends up suspended. Ends, got suspended in game six. I mean, that's what that's what I mean, especially when it comes to these big games and you're going to do something like that where you put your team in a bind. Man, it it's a poor reflection on you. And that's just my way of looking at it. Yeah, I mean, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a bad way to look at it. Obviously, I mean, I don't agree with you in the sense of there should be more consequences because you get two of those. You're out. No, and, no, 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 no. I'm saying that the team should look at it more. Sev- like severely i'm saying like oh, internally oh, like like, like yeah, his teammates yeah, yeah. are like hey dude you can't be doing that like you're putting our you're putting the team in a hole because of your shenanigans that's what i mean by like consequences i mean I from you. his teammates that's what i meant gotcha you know that, that that makes more sense i was really confused i was like uh, i mean like you get two you're pretty much done and when you get a t you're pretty much ticked off as it is 
So it's a, it's a matter of time for certain players to get another one. Um, but yeah, no, I just, you know, I don't know. It's just a topic I thought I'd bring up because it, it's, it's, it's something that's been bothering me. Obviously I'm not just talking about the Mavericks. I do try to watch as much basketball as I can. And, you know, hearing the fact that I'm hearing a whistle more than I'm hearing damn squeaking shoes has just been really driving my gears lately. And it's just been like, dude, why are we blowing whistles for everything? Like, we got to let players play, man. It, it, it disrupts the, the flow of the game. I totally understand that. So it's the same thing with flags in football. You got to let them yeah. play. You know what I'm saying? Like it slows the game down and then it, you know, it interrupts the momentum a team is already on. It gives another team an opportunity to come back. It's just, there's so many underlying situations or underlying meanings behind a technical foul or a penalty in general that people just don't understand. And I think like you said, players need to be more aware of shit. If I get teed up for this, this literally would be the dumbest thing ever, and it can really screw our chances. But in the moment, they don't think that. Of course not, because we're human and we have emotions, bro. It's like, yeah, I are get you it. kidding I get me? It. It's a fact. You played I, high school I, football. I get it. I do. I, but I wasn't necessarily a hothead. I'm not really the best example to bring up. No, but I'm saying in general, there were probably plays where you were like, you really called me for a hold there? Or like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you didn't need, you, you, like a ref that, this is something that we can both atone to in any sport. When a ref blows, a whistle or throws a flag when he's all the way down the damn field and you're sitting there like, how the fuck could you see me from over there? Or like, what did you see from over there? I'll tell you this. The one thing that the NBA needs to really start cracking down on is this, this, these shooting fouls where the defensive player is standing, is standing straight up and and the the offensive player is going into the defensive player with his shoulder and shooting the ball to get a foul. That's yeah, ridiculous. The thing I've ever need, seen. Th- that is ridiculous because the offensive player is initiating the contact, not the defensive player. The defensive player is holding his ground, has his hands up straight in the air. And you're going to sit here and tell me that the defensive player is the one getting the foul when the offensive player is generating the contact. Now, if the defensive, if the defensive player jumps a little bit different, if the defensive player leaves his feet, but, if you're generating contact and the offensive player is doing it and get the defensive player is getting the foul, that's BS. That's who started we, that though. Who started that? James Harden. I mean, of course. But look, you got, you got a lot of players doing that now. I mean, Luca, Luca is a prime suspect of doing it. Yeah. Trey young. Draymond green's done it. Remember he took like a 40 foot three point shot when the warriors were down three, a couple of weeks ago, he chucks a 40 foot shot trying to generate a foul Contact. while he's shooting and yeah. they don't call it. I think because I think um, the defensive player kind of like got out of the way before Draymond. Could I think that, I, I think that one's a little bit different because I'm talking about the players like Trey and Luca that are coming off of a screen with a defender on their hip and they feel them coming and they stop dead where they are and they throw the ball up. Yeah, or when when yeah. when a player gets one up in the air and then like the player the defensive player lands right where he is not on the player but because Luca or Trey jumps into them that's a foul that's not a foul at all if if I go for a pump trying to block you straight up and I'm going up to try to get test it and you're jumping at an angle to come draw contact that's an offensive foul yeah in my mind I did that, that, what, yeah. what what did I do I contested the shot I didn't hit you you hit me it, it's also the it, KD used to do this too where he used to like have the ball oh, the swipe the, the swipe the, the swipe is the legal swipe. the swipe is legal that's legal. I, know, I know it's it's annoying though it's annoying but the swipe isn't as prevalent as this foul right that we're talking about where the stop motion of you know forcing themselves in and and to me 
it's kind of like a good, I guess it's kind of like a good counter to, to a hand check. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I get it. It's annoying though. Yeah. There, there are a lot of things that are going to be questionable and annoying for us, but you know, we do got to move on. So, I mean, the next topic on our list is going to be mid season awards. So we have coach of the year, defensive player of the year, most improved player of the year. And since we're, you know, we're not going to try to break every single aspect of this down and in its integrity, I'm just going to ask Kyle and he's going to ask me our opinions of each. So Kyle, I'll go with you first and I'm going to start with something simple coach of the year, you know, just pick one coach, not in the conference, you know, not each conference, just one coach that you believe is the best coach in this league right now. Look, this is a tricky one for me because I think a lot of people would say Doc Rivers because of where the 76ers are. Look, I'm going to say Monty Williams. Thank you. Monty Williams, man. I'll tell you right now, the Suns are the second seed in the Western Conference right now. The addition of Chris Paul has paid huge dividends for them. Devin Booker's having a career year this year. And I thought that the the Suns were probably going to be like a mid-level team in the Western Conference this year, maybe like around like a five or six seed this year. Not a two. Not a two. They've been playing outstanding basketball. Just, I love what Chris Paul has brought to this team because even if you look at what Chris Paul did with OKC last year, OKC, I didn't even think was even remotely a playoff team with Chris Paul last year. Obviously proved me wrong, proved a lot of people wrong. They ended up getting the five seed last year with, with OKC and got them the seven games against a pretty solid Houston team. I just think that the, the addition of Chris Paul has been amazing for them this year obviously he doesn't have the greatest stats this year but i mean for the money that he's getting paid this year he's playing absolutely outstanding but i could go on and on about chris paul but it's we got to talk about the coach here it's monty williams monty williams has been one of the most underrated coaches in the league for a very long time and he's dealt with a significant amount of, per, of personal matters, losing his family. I believe it was in a car crash, right? A couple of years yeah, ago when I'm he was pretty in sure. OKC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, yep. So he's, I, he's overcome yeah. a lot of trials and tribulations, but man, he is having a ton of success with this really young Phoenix team. And I loved the way that he addressed that team last year where it kind After of brought the them all together. I loved it. He that said, was a great speech. He's a great i mean the guy is just a stand-up citizen in the nba and man he's my coach of the year so far at this point in the season yeah no i mean since you pretty much stole all my thunder um i'm gonna go and counter that with just a backup coach and i am gonna say doc rivers because i believe that doc rivers is showing that last year obviously the way that the playoffs ended with the clippers getting bounced by denver when they were up three one um, and pretty much everybody kind of blaming Doc for all of that and then hiring Tyron Lou right behind his back like Ty was going to make a big difference. Um, I found it to be a little disrespectful because we're talking about Doc Rivers as one of the greatest coaches this game has ever seen, and Paul George was having an absolutely atrocious postseason, and Kawhi Leonard had a probably one of the worst Game 7s a superstar is supposed to have in a Game 7. He had like 11, 13 points, bro. Like to, 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 to put all of that on Doc Rivers, like he was actually suited up, kind of upsets me. And like they didn't upgrade a coach at all. They literally downgraded. We all know that Tyron Lue was a good coach, good coach, because LeBron James was on the team and Tyron Lue wasn't going to tell LeBron James what to do. We all know LeBron kind of coaches himself. So... It, it, yep. it, it, to, to, to literally say, yo, we got a better coach sitting right next to him, it's just stupid to me. That just makes no sense. 
He has an MVP caliber player in Joel Embiid right now playing out of his mind. You have Ben Simmons in the running for the defensive player of the year who is starting to at least shoot the basketball more than he normally does. I'm not saying he's becoming a, a stud by, by any means, like but he, you do, yeah, you, you do see some aspects of his game improving. The team as a whole seems to have drastically turned its motivation around, you know, its mindset because they are the number one seed in the Eastern conference. And overall, they just look like they're playing a lot better. You know, Joel Embiid is leading the way, but the team as a whole is playing stellar basketball. Yep. And a lot of that is in light to Doc Rivers. And for him to turn around a team that was, what was the 76ers last year? A bottom three-seated team? Like a, they like were, a six, they, seven, or eight seed? They were, I think they were a seven seed last year. Like they were, they were at the bottom of the Eastern Conference, which would have been out of the Western Conference playoffs. But it's the point of, he turned the team around. He managed the ego of Joel Embiid. He, like I said earlier, he kind of weathered the storm that was the process. And I think that they're, they're, they're playing great basketball. And I think Doc Rivers deserves a lot of respect because he has dealt with similar situations like this throughout his whole career. I really think that this is a two-man race between Doc Rivers and Monty Williams at this point. It's just for me personally, I love what Monty Williams has done by developing these young, these young bulls on the Suns this year. And I mean, it, not not just this year, even in last year, because they were playing outstanding basketball. They were undefeated in the bubble. In the what, bubble, they, I don't know. Yeah, I think they just missed getting out of the playoff, getting into the playoffs last year. It's just, I, look, I love what Monty Williams has done with this team, and who knows? Could this team? Could I don't know if this team's going to crack the number one seed in the West. I think Utah would definitely have to slide a little bit for that to happen. But I love the direction of where this Phoenix team is going. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, so uh, I ask again, then, what's next for most improved player? What do you What do you got for me there? Most improved, most improved player. I probably have Zach Levine. Zach Levine has been just outstanding this year. I mean, just looking at his stats this year, he's almost averaging twenty nine points a game this year, averaging over fifty two and a half percent from the field. He's shooting over forty three percent behind the three point line. And he's also got five rebounds and five assists to go along with it too. And he's also averaging about a steal a game. For for me, I thought Zach would kind of be more of like a, a solid average player, maybe averaging around at best, maybe like 20, 22 points a game, probably at the highest point in his career. But I will say this ever since he's been with the bulls, probably since let's say 2018, 2019, he has taken leaps and bounds in his career. I mean, really, ever since that ACL tear that he suffered a couple of years back, he's been outstanding. And he's been really that shining star on Chicago. Honestly, I thought Kobe White could have been maybe that shining star for Chicago. But what kind of – My see- dog out here hooping. Don't disrespect Kobe like that. But I just – I didn't see Zach Levine really rising to the level that he is. He's an all-star this year. Could have arguably been – was. He was a reserve, correct? This year. I thought he was going to be yeah. a starter. For yeah, because sure. because he could have been a starter for the Eastern Conference this year. But look, man, the way that he's been playing, he has Chicago at least in – what's their seed in the Eastern Conference right now? Chicago I don't, I, is, I don't know off the top of my head. I know that they're definitely – They're they're 10, but they're so, tied. There's a three-way tie for the eighth seed right so now. So, look, they got an outside shot to make the playoffs this year. They've got half of the season left to do it. Yeah, man, I, I got Zach. I don't know about yeah, you, no, but I got uh, Zach. It's 100% Zach for me, and it's 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 actually, like, pretty blindly, like, it should be him all the way, at least in my opinion. 
I mean, I've been a fan of Zach Levine since he got drafted into the NBA. Um, I never really talked about him as much as I should have. It was always like that kind of sleeper player that I was always like, yo, I think he's really cool. And obviously post ACL tears when it really picked up because you saw he was usually known for his dunks, obviously the dunk contests and all the things that he was doing. And um, his athleticism was kind of the focal point of his entire game. But I mean, since he's been in the league since 2014, Zach's numbers have drastically improved every single season. His rookie year, he averaged 10. Next season, he averaged 14. The next season is when he tore his ACL, I think. I, I can't remember. Year. I forget which year. I, I think it was when I he was forget. Minnesota. I think yeah, it was, no, it was, was definitely it was, it was one of the first three years, but for whatever reason, this isn't showing me when it was. Um, so he goes from 10 points to 14 points to 18 points, then gets traded the next season. And he plays a very minimal amount of games with 24 games in that was Chicago. Him, that was him probably coming back from the ACL. I imagine so he, he had, in 2016. So he had 16 points. So it went down a little bit. But right when he came back to full form, Zach Levine went to 23 points, then to 25 points, and now to 28 points. Mm-hmm. Zach Levine has become a superstar in this league. He has become a well above average player, and rightfully so an all-star. And I mean, you've pretty much read it off of all his numbers this season. He's leading Chicago back to some form of relevance since Derrick Rose. They're not like a top seed or anything, but people are talking about the Bulls, not because of Michael Jordan, not because of Derrick Rose, but because of Zach Levine and Kobe White and, and, and Zach leading the charge. He is pushing in every aspect of the word to get them to the playoffs. And I think that he needs to be rightfully, um, you know, he needs to be rightfully, what's the word I'm looking for? Rightfully. I would say just respected. There you go. He, he needs to be respected because this, this man hooping, and there's no other word to put other than that. Like, he's balling the fuck out. Yeah, but if I had to kind of throw an honorable mention for most improved player of the year, I'd probably say Julius Randle with the next. He's an all-star this year. He's averaging over 22, 23 points a game. But I do think that having the influence of Tom Thibodeau on the team has really improved his stature with that team. So, and honestly, you can't even talk about Tom Thibodeau as like an outside coach, coach of the year, year yep, too. Yep, so, yep. no denials there. I mean, what's left on the list then? What do we got? We, we, we still got a couple left. Um, let's look at the list here. So, um, rookie of the year, uh, who do you have for rookie of the year so far, the midpoint of the year? La Mellow Ball. Yeah. I think it's tired think of it's, this whole mellow bullshit just because. Carmelo Anthony was cool with him in the middle of a game or like told him that he appreciates him and respects him. Doesn't mean he gets the title of mellow off the back. Would you call yourself in your backyard and with your family? You, you can't carry that over and call yourself. It just doesn't work that way. As long as Carmelo Anthony is in this league, he'll always be mellow. But exactly. yes, LaMelo, LaMelo Ball is for sure the rookie of the year. Yeah, LaMelo Ball is basically the guy that we thought Lonzo was going to be. Because Lonzo was – look – his dad was kind of hyping him up back in the day, but the way that LaMelo ball has been playing so far is what we were expecting Lonzo ball to be when he first came into the league. LaMelo, I think is averaging about 15 to 16 points a game. He's averaging about 37 and a half percent behind the three point line this year. And look, Charlotte is a team on the rise. They got a bunch of young players on the team. I think the addition of Gordon Hayward has really paid off dividends for, for that team as well. But LaMelo has been sensational and dude, his handles, are nice and his ability to pass the ball at such a young age is phenomenal his so, court vision is stellar like, i mean it's absolutely incredible, incredible. At the, i mean at the age that he's doing it at too you got to give him a lot of props for that 
Yeah, I mean, it, I don't think it's really that close because excluding Anthony Edwards' emphatic dunk a couple of weeks ago and, um, you know, James Wiseman kind of being out the last couple of weeks with injury, it, it's kind of been the LaMelo show and the LaMelo show only. He is just doing everything he needs to do. Charlotte's in the playoff home hunt right now. They're, they're, they're in the postseason right now. If I'm not mistaken, they're the sixth seed and the seventh seed in the, in the East. Not that they're yeah. above 500, but they're doing something. And it's solely because this man is carrying the team in every way he needs to. I mean, a 19-year-old with this leadership, this composure, him being able to, 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 to run the break and, you know, control the tempo of the offense. Yep. And he's probably the one of the better shooting out of the three brothers. I think that Jello's probably got the best pure jump shot. But for this kid to have – it's weird. All three of them don't have pretty jump shots. Obviously, Lonzo's being the, the weirdest with the side hook. But LaMelo kind of just with the, the barely any kind of a jump shot to it. Um, surprisingly, like you said, he's shooting just under 44 – just under 45% from the field. And he's shooting 38% from the three-point line. So it's – He's playing efficient basketball and he's doing everything he needs to do as a rookie and then some. So I think that that's a shoe in for sure. Yep. Uh, we got two more. So we'll first start with the defensive player of the year. Who do you have as the defensive player of the year at this point in the season? So I'll be blunt with the audience for the sheer fact of I don't necessarily follow this stat as much as I should. Um, I don't really see a lot of players that make that big of an impact like a Gary Payton back in the day. Um, like a Michael Jordan, you know what I mean? I don't see a player in this league that locks up every single year. Like that's their, that's their bread and butter. That's what they do. Um, Rudy Gobert is a shot blocking big because he's so damn tall. And it's sad that that's pretty much all it's come down to, to win that award. Because I mean, realistically outside of Kawhi Leonard, the award has usually gone to a big Dwight Howard, Rudy Gobert, um, you know, Anthony Davis, the list kind of goes on. It's usually a big, mm-hmm. but I don't, I don't, I would guess it's going to be Rudy. I know that Ben Simmons has kind of talked himself into the defensive player of the year conversation. And ironically enough, he's actually getting some votes, but uh, I guess for the, the sheer intensive purposes for the, for the podcast, I'll, I'll probably say Rudy. Yeah, that's who I got. Cause at first I was kind of thinking it was okay. Maybe it was Embiid and Gobert going at it. But when I looked at, at the stats and I kind of did some, some more in-depth looks at both Rudy and Embiid at this point, I'm going with Gobert. When you look at Gobert, he's averaging over 13 rebounds a game, which is the second highest in his career. So last year was actually his career high. He averaged 13 and a half rebounds last year. He's averaging 13.1 rebounds this year. So, I mean, it's just really kind of a smidge off from last year. It's basically on pace, which is just nuts. Also, the one stat that really kind of stands out to me is his blocks per game. He's almost he's almost averaging three blocks a game. Last last year he was averaging, I believe, somewhere around like two, like two and a quarter. This year he's averaging right around like two point seven, which would which is on pace for his career high. And look, I think I I pick Gobert simply because his defensive presence has been a major factor for Utah being where they're at. Obviously, Donovan Mitchell has been a stud this year. And also the – As well as Jordan Clarkson, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say the role players have really stepped up as well. But his defensive presence with Gobert has been outstanding this year. And in large part, it is a factor to why the Utah Jazz have not only the best record in the Western Conference, but they have the best record in the league. So – for defensive player of the year at the midpoint part of the season, I've got Rudy Gobert. 
No arguments here. What's next? And then the last category that we have is comeback player of the year. And I think this is going to be a layup for you and me both. Oh, and six, and, and six man of the year. If you want to go over the six man, we can. Yeah, I just, I don't know. Just, I just randomly, I was thinking about it. But uh, I mean, comeback player of the year, it, to me, it's a shoe in between just two players. Obviously, ironically enough, two former teammates. Kevin Durant of the Brooklyn Nets and Stephen Curry of the Golden State Warriors. Kevin coming off of a horrific Achilles tear in the NBA Finals a few years back, missing all of last season and uh, coming back this season pretty much with a vengeance. The Slim Reaper kind of has come back to full effect, averaging just under 30. And like I had stated earlier, he has missed uh, some games due to COVID contact uh, two times this season. He has missed a couple of games due to rest and some minor injuries. But when he is on the court, I mean, he is absolutely playing out of this world. And to know that he did tear an Achilles, he is seven feet and he is still doing all the things that Kevin Durant did prior to it. It is absolutely uh, a scaring thought to really think that this man's only going to get better as the season progresses. And then Stephen Curry, obviously breaking his hand last season, missing pretty much the entire year. Um, uh, Golden State kind of falling down and collapsing to being one of the worst teams, if not the actual worst team in the league and getting the number two overall pick in the draft to get Wiseman, uh, Steph, obviously, to go out there and lose Clay right before the season starts to an Achilles tear. And then, you know, like we talked about earlier, the, the lack there of play and consistency around his teammates with Kelly Oubre at times and Andrew Wiggins and Draymond Green for them to be fighting for a Western conference playoff spot and for him to be averaging basically 30 points a game in his first year back. It's just crazy. And it just continues to add to both their legacies to show that these are two of the best players this league's ever seen. And this little minuscule award is something that neither of them care about. They both want yeah. more hardware, but um, I would say it's a, it's a, it's a pretty close race with the two of them. If you had to pick one, who would you pick? I'm only picking Steph because KD does have Kyrie and James by his side. It's fair enough. I'm going to go with KD here simply because I think coming back from an Achilles injury, the tear that he suffered in the finals against the Raptors last year is a more difficult injury to come back from than a broken hand with Steph. Not to discredit Steph. Steph has been no. absolutely dominant this year. It is, he's been carrying the team as best as he can with Kelly Oubre being inconsistent, Andrew Wiggins being pretty much a non-factor at this point, and Draymond up to his shenanigans. So like you mentioned, I mean, Steph's averaging 30 points a game. So it's not because the Warriors are in the position they are in simply because of Steph's dominance and greatness. But I, like I said, I'm going to go with KD here. He's averaging 29 points a game. He's averaging seven rebounds, five assists to go along with it. And also he's averaging about a block and a half a game, which is, I believe, his like second highest career average at this point. So he's playing pretty well across the board. Not only that, He's shooting 52.5% from the field, which is his second highest in his career. And then he's shooting 43% behind the three-point line, which is which is his best percentage in his career at this point. And the Nets, look, the Nets obviously have a three-headed monster with Durant, Harden, and Kyrie at this point. But KD is a major factor for the fact that the Nets are essentially tied with the 76ers for the number one spot in the Eastern Conference at this point. I believe they're only a, a half of half of a game back at this point. So Katie's been a major factor with that, even with the fact that he's he's dealt with COVID multiple times this season. And he has shown no slowdown whatsoever from that Achilles tear that he had a few years back. And to me, he's my he's my pick for comeback player of the year. Yeah, no, I mean, obviously a comparison between an Achilles tear and then a handbrake is just 
is just absolutely incredible. I mean, you know, it's very significant. So to compare that to Steph's small fracture or his small break, it does make sense. So, I mean, like you kind of have me teetering now, obviously I would like to put my dog Steph up there, but I mean, an Achilles versus a hand is kind of a clear cut and concise argument for me when it comes to if you had to vote today. So, I mean, like sliding over to the uh, sixth man of the year award, I know it was kind of sprung at the last second, but uh, what do you got for me? What are you thinking? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know. This is one I'm not really, really known for. I mean, because basically this is basically the Lou Williams award. Um, <laughs> at this point, um, I'm going to ask you on this one. So, I mean, to me, it's a race between two players. Obviously, I could be missing somebody because I only see a lot of highlights and statistics based off of these two players coming off the bench mainly. And that's Jordan Clarkson of the Utah Jazz and Tim Hardaway Jr. of the Dallas Mavericks. Once Tim kind of transitioned from the starter role to the bench, it really took off in terms of his production increasing, his his consistency improving, as well as his percentages all kind of growing. And then Jordan Clarkson is just absolutely playing bonkers off the bench. I mean, he's averaging point uh, one points away from 18. So, I mean, he's have, he has 17.9 points a game, four rebounds a game, 2.3 assists, 44% from the field and 37 from the three-point line. But he's shooting 96% from the free throw line. Those are starter numbers. Exactly. So, Those he's are, doing that off nuts. the bench. That's behind Donovan Mitchell. So you combine what Donovan's averaging and what Jordan's averaging. So the two position, the two guard position for the Utah Jazz is averaging upwards of 40 points a game, which is crazy. And then to slide over to Tim, his numbers aren't as big, but in terms of production from when he started to now is 16 a game right now. He's at 3.2 rebounds, 1.7 assists, which kind of hinders his award right here his standings he's shooting 43 percent from the field but he's shooting 38.5 percent from the three-point line and he's shooting 80 percent from the uh, free throw line like i said uh, i'm probably missing some players in this uh as as you stated i'm not exactly familiar with the six-man award the only reason i know the two of these is one one's on my team and two because i remember when jordan cooked us for like 35 points by himself a couple of months back and i've kind of been keeping track with utah yeah, this is just kind of like when you brought up the defensive player of the year. Kind of similar situation with me when it comes to the sixth man. I've always kind of regarded the sixth man as like the Lou Williams Award or like maybe some of like the like Trevor Reza. Like those type of players are always kind of like those six man type players, maybe even Jamal Crawford back in the day. But give it to Caruso. But what yeah. <laughs> my dog. Man. The bald assassin. I know. Ever since he got that headband, man, he's been he's been playing Hooper. well. Hooper. But yeah, I, I, when you when you started bringing up the two potential names, like when I when you said two, I was like, uh, I know who one is, and it's gonna be Jordan Clarkson. So, I mean, look, Utah's gonna have probably has a real good shot of landing two players for these for these pretty solid awards with Rudy Gobert possibly getting the Defensive Player of the Year award, and then Jordan Clarkson getting the Sixth Man of the Year award. So. You have two of those players on the same team getting pretty solid, pretty big awards. It's pretty big for for Utah, just because I don't think anybody really expected Utah to be in the position that they're in right now. Absolutely not. Nobody did. Uh, you know, kind of hitting a, a a point in the show where we kind of hit a, a little bit of a turn. So speaking of things that people didn't really necessarily see coming, 
Uh, we're going to transition into the NFL. I know that we always kind of try to try to bring you guys some form of form of an update, but uh, this is going to kind of just be a little bit more of opinions based for me and Kyle. Um, we obviously know that there are quarterback carousel going around this league right now with uh, trade rumors kind of circling over and over with the same repeated names and pretty much in the same pot, which is Russell Wilson, Deshaun Watson. Um, obviously you have Dak Prescott. We're waiting to hear stuff on for free agency and if they're going to tag him or not. And, you know, we're waiting on the looming contract situation with Lamar Jackson and, you know, a, a, a list of names of players. So Kyle and I wanted to talk about two players in particular. I kind of wanted to have my little bodega moment about Russell. And I know I've been kind of mentioning it over and over over the last couple of weeks. Um, I predicted Russell to not be on the Seattle's raw. I, I predicted for him not to be on the roster. I think Russell gets moved. And my prediction just seems to continue to gain momentum as the weeks go on, because last week we heard that Russell's camp was not happy with Seattle's lack of ability to draft and, you know, build a better team around him via the offensive line. Now we hear this week throughout the week that um, Seattle isn't happy with Russell and will be listening to phone calls from the specific teams that Russell would be uh, willing to be traded to, which would be the Dallas Cowboys, the Las Vegas Raiders, the Chicago Bears. And I believe the Miami Dolphins or the Jets. I don't remember necessarily which one of those two it was, but I'm just going to say that I don't think a lot of those teams are realistic in terms of trade destinations because Kyle and I were talking about it throughout the week. A lot of those teams don't have a lot to offer in terms of players to get back to put Seattle back into a plug in, you know, win now mode. There are a lot of players on that roster that are fairly young, you know, DK Metcalf, Jamal Williams. Uh, um, you know, Chris Carson and so on and so forth in terms of youth. You don't really want to waste a prolific talent like that with a, you know, just getting a bunch of pick back, getting a bunch of picks back, drafting a rookie and then end up being, you know, sub 500. So Kyle kind of brought to my attention, if Seattle is going to trade Russ, they're going to need to get a, a, a decent comparable quarterback in return. And I think realistically, I, at least I came to this realization a few minutes before we started recording was I think Dallas is the best suited trader for this situation. Hear me out. Now, here's my here's my thesis. Here's my hypothesis. Right, Dallas is current. Dallas is currently in a situation where their star player is unhappy and wants a long term commitment from the Cowboys. Now, Dax Camp is asking for upwards of Patrick Mahomes money. Obviously, not to the level of Patrick Mahomes, but they want him to be the second highest paid quarterback. And by they, I mean Dax Camp wants him to be the second highest paid quarterback in the NFL. I think they're smoking some good shit out there in Dallas because there's no way he's the second best quarterback in the NFL. Now, my issue with this entire thing is I think Dallas fucked up by not giving him the contract before Mahomes signed his half a billion dollar year because that only blew the market out of proportion. And when Dak had a season that he was having before the injury, I think that completely shifted all momentum over to the Dallas Cowboys because they do have a, a very competent and solid offense. Obviously the defense needs work, but when you have the likes of Amari Cooper, CD lamb, Michael Gallup and Ezekiel Elliott as an offense, and you have a quarterback that is consistently showing you that when I play, we are better, but when I don't, we suck. And that really showed last year when they struggled right before the tail end of the season, when they started to trickle games and trickle some wins together, but long story short to get back to the Russell situation, Dak needs to get a contract. Russell wants to get out. I think they do a sign and trade where they give Dak some form of money, even if it's a two-year extension or three-year extension. 
They compromised to some money and they put Dak in a better position to win now because let's be honest, the NFC East is pretty much a dumpster fire as of right now. And I think that Dallas is a better team only because they have the better offense out of all of them, but they obviously probably have the worst defense out of all four teams. So, you know, they could end up being a 500 team by default. So I would say that Dallas finds a way to compromise with, uh, with, with Dallas, you know, with, with the camps, they, they sign they sign Dak and then they trade him over to Seattle. Russell's going to be happier with the better offensive line that the Dallas Cowboys have than the Seahawks. And he, he inherits weapons. You know, he becomes the face of a franchise, America's team. You know, Jerry's going to love him. He's a little bit older than Dak, but he's healthier than Dak. And you know what I mean? Like, he's got a healthy, you know, top five running back when he feels like it. You have a potential top 10 receiver when Amari wants to play. An upcoming potential rookie of the year candidate this year with, uh, you know, C.D. Lamb. And, and the list kind of goes on. You know, you draft a little bit more of a defensive presence. You know, Russell Wilson being acquired by the Dallas Cowboys might make Dallas more of an attractive in in an attractive location for free agents, but I feel like they can make it work because both contracts are going to be crazy. So Dak wants anywhere from 40 to $45 million a year. Russell's getting paid over 30. So, I mean, you save money by trading for Russ, right? And, you know, you send that headache over to Seattle and see if Pete Carroll can handle it. Because obviously the whole Mike McCarthy experiment didn't really work out last season, but in partial, that was because Dak wasn't there. But when Dak was, they played phenomenal offensively. I have to say, it is a compelling argument that you make. I'm not going to lie about that. I think that possible sign and trade for Russell Wilson and Dak Prescott, I think that actually makes somewhat sense. But I'm still opposed to the idea of Russell Wilson being traded because even if he were – I'll use your example of him going to Dallas in your case. I don't necessarily think that they would be in any – different like placement in the playoffs because I think if you look at where Seattle is right now currently they would basically kind of be the same team if Russell was on the Cowboys because you honestly I think Dallas's defense is worse than Seattle's and that was and that was with Dak playing out of his mind in the first three to four games before he ended up breaking his leg and the value between both of them, I think is a little bit different. I think there's still a little bit more upside with Dak because he's younger. Russ is just a a proven commodity at this point. And I I do think it would be exciting to see the possibility of Russ throwing to Amari Cooper, CeeDee Lamb and Michael Gallup. But I'm still of the mindset that Russell Wilson is probably going to stay in Seattle. And here's why, because I don't know if Seattle wants to deal with any sort of nonsense with a possible sign and trade with that Prescott where his camp is asking almost up to $50 million a year for what Patrick Mahomes is making on a year and year out basis. I think Dak realistically, this is just from my perspective, Dak is probably worth a 35 million a year quarterback. Now, I think his camp is going to probably get him close to like 40 to 45. And I can understand why Dallas, in that sense, does, doesn't want to shell out that type of money for a quarterback. And I, I wouldn't don't, either. And I don't think Seattle would either. I think Seattle would be much more content with a piece that they've known and that they've drafted 
And look, I think a lot of these issues that Russ and the Seattle Seahawks have, they could be mended. I don't, we've said this time and time again. I don't think that the issues that the Seattle Seahawks and Russell Wilson are dealing with are worse than what it was, what's been going on with the Texans and Deshaun Watson, Carson Wentz, and the Philadelphia Eagles. I haven't seen that. I, I see the Seahawks doing their due diligence from a front office perspective and maybe seeing what these trade offers are. I think a lot of front offices do that. They, they will always kind of field calls to see what, what one player could get in value in a trade package. I think that just kind of goes along with the business. But I think week one, I would be shocked if Russell Wilson was at the starting quarterback for the Seattle Seahawks. I, I've seen the reports. I've kind of taken them with a grain of salt because I think a lot of the reports that we've seen in that are associated with Russell Wilson are just generating headlines at this point. But I haven't seen a significant update to me, I'm saying to me, where Russell is going to be on a different team next year. I think his best team moving forward is with Seattle. And that's even despite the fact that maybe him and Pete Carroll don't necessarily see eye to eye on everything, but I think he would be on a lot. I think he'd be in a better situation in Seattle than going to someplace like Chicago, going to a place like Dallas, where Dallas has the worst defense has one of the worst defenses in NFL history, as far as I'm concerned. So I think you've made a compelling argument with the possible sign and trade with Dallas. I just don't see that happening. I think Russell stays in Seattle. That's just how I see it. You know, I, you know, Kyle and I have been going back and forth with this for weeks, literally. As the reports come out, I'm blowing up this man's phone. I can't even exaggerate. If there's a Russell Wilson report, I'm sending it to Kyle before yep. I even read it. it. It could literally be Russell Wilson and Sierra having another baby. I it, see Russell Wilson. I'm, I'm sending it. And, and look, if Kev ends up being right, look, I'll send him a case of Corona. Uh, that's the deal. So, and vice versa. If Russell's yeah, yeah. still on the roster, then I send him. So similar to what Shannon Sharp and uh, yeah. you know Skip Bayless do with the case of Mountain Dew, we're gonna do that with a beer, uh, the case of beer. I just, I don't know, man. I got, I got this weird feeling, and I, I continue to see somewhat be right in terms of the relationship continuing to not be as keen as others would like it to be, and the reports continue to heat up. Uh, I got a coworker of mine. Shout out to Reed. Uh, he's a, a big, big, big Chicago Bears fan. He's a very, you know big football head as well as we are. And he sees the reports at any, any, any time there's a mention of Russell or Deshaun to Houston, this man's blowing up my phone with like the worst quality you mean to Chicago. Like, to, yeah. Yeah. That's what I mean to Chicago. Um, he's sending me the worst edited Photoshop pictures of Russell and, or Deshaun in the, the Chicago jerseys. I'm like, bro, did, did, did did your son make this? Like, bro, it's like it's like Russell's face is lopsided. The jersey doesn't fit him. The numbers like off, and it's like, I was like, bro, it looked like I did this. I don't even know how to fucking copy and paste this stuff. I saw and I'm some. like, dude, where? I was like, where's your sources? He was like, look, it's a shift. He said it. I was like, read. What does that mean? It said he he would he wouldn't mind going to Chicago. It doesn't mean he's going. He'll he'll be in a Bears jersey. He'll, he'll definitely be in a Bears jersey. So so read if you listen to this. I hope for your sake he does, but I don't think it's going to be possible because I don't see Seattle giving up their literal franchise for picks. You guys don't have a quarterback on that roster that they're going to want, and I don't think that picks are enough to get rid of Russell Wilson in Seattle's current case. I saw an edit of Russell Wilson the other day, and it was an edit of him in a Patriots jersey, and it was absolutely fire. 
fire. It's not gonna happen. But it was. But why fire. do why do you see why do you have to end episodes where you get me upset? Like you always have to literally piss me the fuck off with stupidity. Because it's my job, bro. What are you gonna do? Trade Cam Newton? He ain't even on the roster. I mean, look. I mean, I, look. Patriot you're gonna Court, you're gonna give him Sudfeld. That's what you're gonna do, right? Sudfeld, what Sudfeld, whatever. I, I'm not talking about anything about that. I'm just saying that the edit that I saw on Instagram the other day of Russell Wilson in a Patriots jersey was fire. Is it gonna happen? No. But don't be surprised if Bill Belichick throws out an offer to Seattle with those two second round draft picks and a bag of chips, like I mentioned the other day. Don't be surprised about that. <laughs> yeah, they're gonna trade him to kill Harry in the washing machine, too. Yeah, man. They could trade him the freaking equipment manager, as far as I'm concerned. Shit, man. That man go to New England. I'm blocking your number. I'm changing the podcast name again. <laughs> man, we're gonna have to change it to uh Patriots or Super Bowl contenders at that point, bro. Oh my god. And then the, the and and then the evil empire strikes back. This man brought Star Wars into this. You need to go home. Like I think I think you drink. I think you drunk, bro. Are you are you crazy? Super Bowl contenders with no offense? They got Russell Wilson. You're shopping. Any, anything shopping can happen. Gilmore. Anything well, that was expected. That's expected. So He's your been, defense immediately gets worse. They got JC Jackson. JC Jackson had eight interceptions last year. He had like the second highest total in interceptions last year. I think the only guy that had to beat was uh, Xavier Howard with the Miami Dolphins. JC Jackson's so, no scrub. JC Jackson I never said he nice. was a scrub. I never said he was a scrub. But when you have the number one receiver locked up on the other side of the field, you ain't got really to worry. Yeah, I mean, it, it is what it that is. That makes but, a big difference. But it, it's something that, look, that I've expected. I've seen this coming down the, the pipeline for probably the last year or two. And then when he, I think he injured his quad at the end of the year last year, I was pretty much thinking, it's like, yeah, he's done in New England. They're going to trade him. Like, this is, like, to me, like, I've seen these moves before, and this is so typical New England. They're probably going to ship him out for, like, a second and third round draft pick. And, you know, it's crazy. I was listening to Pat McAfee once again, and they said, wouldn't it be some shit if Pat Peterson leaves and they go and replace him with Stephon Gilmore? You can make it happen. What? It, it, what the fuck? <laughs> I mean, look, Stephon I, Gilmore and Buda Baker on one side of the field, JJ Watt and Chandler Jones. That's four pillars of a defense you don't want to fuck with. It's Stephon Gilmore still has some decent years left in the league. He's exactly, probably still got two, three years. Them, that puts them in win now further mode. That puts them in a yo, this is what it is. We're going to go for this all this year. Like, I wouldn't be surprised Arizona goes to make a push. First, one more trade or like a free agent signing. You got to give a lot of credit though to to Belichick for getting Gilmore to where he is in the league. He was already kind of he was already kind of like an up and rising star with Buffalo, but when he went to New England, he was he had another gear. He was locked down. I mean, it was he was the best corner in the league. Yeah, Gilly 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 came out of South Carolina and he had a lot of talent and a lot of upside. But when he hit that Belichick defensive system, it was a whole nother game. Yeah, because I'm I remember defensive player uh, of the year, right? I think he won defensive player of the year. Or he was like close to getting it. I'm I, I remember this was back when he was with Buffalo, and I knew that it, the major issue with him wasn't his skills. It was probably the defensive scheme that they had. I believe was um I don't think Rex Ryan was there. Maybe was Rex Ryan with Buffalo? Yeah, he was their head coach for a while. Yeah. Um, I remember Chris Hogan torched him 
in meeting Stephon Gilmore. This was, um, I think, the year that the Patriots won against the Falcons in Super Bowl 51. And Brady threw like a 60-yard bomb to Chris Hogan, and the guy that he torched was Stephon Gilmore. But since then, Stephon Gilmore's been an absolute beast in the league. and A lockdown corner. I, yeah, and I, I would personally say that he's probably got about two to three good years left in the league. And then pretty much after that, he, I think he'll probably either be – on his way out, he'll either retire or is going to be kind of like a role know, player. Yeah, basically, kind of like they'll use him in certain packages, and that and that'll pretty much be it. He's got enough in him to get at least another solid two or three year contract, depending on where he goes, because obviously he's going to need an extension. I, so I, I think he's almost kind of like in that Revis stage, where after Revis got um, a Super Bowl ring with New England, he's going to get try to get that last big contract. I think that's what Stephon Gilmore is going to try to get. Sad part is he doesn't control where he gets traded. He has a say, but, you know, if they decide to send him on over, it's kind of a wrap. Yeah, but I I think Stephon Gilmore's got one really good contract left in him. So Exactly. If he he wants to chase the bag one more time, I think as long as he plays well next year, wherever he goes, because I doubt it's New England, he'll, he'll get a bag wherever he goes. Big facts. But, I mean, other than that, guys, uh, I really don't have anything for you. Uh, Other than that, Kyle, you got anything? No, I think we pretty much hit everything. So with that said, you guys, we, I want to uh, take the time to thank you guys for tuning into the episode, whether you were listening to it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts, or if you were watching this on YouTube, I know Kevin and I definitely appreciate the support whenever we can get it. So just to kind of give you guys an update for next week's episodes, we, we'll probably go over some of the all-star game news because the all-star game is going on this weekend so kevin and i will probably talk about that a little bit now we do have baseball coming up very soon so spring training is on the way and i know kev is going to be rubbing his hands together like Birdman when we talk about that next week but i do have to bring up the fact that the yankees lost to the phillies in spring training today by the score of 15 to nothing and i think that'll just wrap up the episode you guys so once again thank you guys for tuning in and we'll see you guys later Take it easy, you guys. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric Hi, I'm Lessa Cadet, host of her Extraordinary Life by Design podcast, where we celebrate women who are shaping their lives one extraordinary day at a time. I speak with women from all over the world about what they do and how they are passionately pursuing their dreams and creating meaningful impacts on their communities. So come join us and learn about all there is to learn about these extraordinary women.